I remember the sweetness of early life and the battle scars of boyhood in this story I call Sweet Potatoes, Look Out Below, and Greg Street Mishaps. The first house I lived in was one of Fort Mill's landmark homes, now called the Belk House. At the time, it was a nice, old, rundown house that rented rooms for struggling families. Rosa and Henry Pryor owned the house and rented rooms to Mom and Dad. The Pryors were very kind people. While we lived there, Henry, an ironmonger, I use that term because blacksmith seems to imply horses, built and repaired anything made of metal. Henry's building stood behind where the Fort Mill Post Office is now and beside what was then the cannery. The cannery, an antiquated community institution, was a beehive of activity during late summer. Operated by the Agriculture Department of the school system, the cannery allowed local families to bring in the bounty from their summer gardens and can fresh fruits and vegetables to put away for the winter. When local gardens diminished and grocery stores proliferated, the cannery was no longer necessary. This was a time after the rationing of World War II when things were repaired and continued to be used. Henry Pryor stayed busy repairing car parts, farm implements, and household goods. I remember standing by the glow of his forge with its huge hand-operated bellows and hearing the ring of hammer upon anvil and wincing at the flying sparks. I was transported to the days of armorers, creating chain mail and beautifully deadly swords. Henry took me under his wing, and I often followed him through a collection of broken refrigerators and washing machines to look for a part he could adapt to make what he needed. One of my favorite memories from that time was standing on the porch with Henry and eating baked sweet potatoes. As they came out of the oven, he would wrap them in newspaper and cut open the brown papery end of the sweet potatoes. We would then drip butter and cinnamon sugar on them and squeeze the orange sweetness like toothpaste into our mouths. Very simple times evoke very simple pleasures. To this day, I feel something comforting about sweet potatoes. Henry's wife Rosa worked at the checkout line at Luke's, a small grocery store at the corner of Bank Street and Tom Hall Street. Years later, when we were in high school, my friends and I would stop by Luke's before school and buy cigarettes and soft drinks. I smoked at the time, but it seems that everyone smoked in the 50s and 60s. I would have my friends buy cigarettes for me because I didn't want to be a disappointment for Rosa. We moved to Greg Street when I was about three and lived there until I was in the fifth grade. Irene and Bill Davis lived next door. Their son Michael was a year younger than me and his brother Billy showed up a couple of years after that. Connie completed the families when I was six. While I was in grammar school, the area behind Greg Street was all woods. Michael and Billy and I cleared out bike trails, created a rustic dirt miniature golf course, and built numerous log forts. Just one wooded lot over from the Davis house was the unpaved end of Pine Street. When the road was cut, a red mud bank about five feet high was left unplanted. The bank became the Muddy Hills. Countless foxholes and tunnels were started and abandoned in the red clay. My parents always hated to see me come home from the Muddy Hills because I was like the Peanuts character, Pigpen. Dad said he could always pick me out from a distance because I was the one covered in red mud. Chipper Hemsoth lived across the street and had the greatest set of baseball cards I ever saw. 
He was also the one who led me into the world of scouting. Joe Henson lived a couple of houses down and was the only kid in town with a pony in the backyard. All of us are friends to this day. Dad was a lieutenant in the National Guard during our time on Gregg Street, and he had to spend two weeks in summer camp at Fort Stewart, Georgia. Mother came to dread the time that he would go to summer camp because those were the times that I always managed to get hurt. She could count the summer camps by my scars. The first trip to the doctor was for eight stitches on the top of my head. The Davis back stoop had two steps and a concrete landing. Beside the stoop was the door to allow access under the house. The access was about three feet below ground level and had a square brick wall bordering it. This small pit beside the porch made the perfect foxhole. One of our favorite pastimes was to jump off this porch into the pit yelling, Geronimo, or look out below. We didn't know why we used those terms, but I later realized Geronimo was the jump yell for airborne troops in World War II. Where we picked it up, I don't know. Jumping in was great fun until one year when Dad was at camp. For some reason, I either tripped or decided to dive and hit my head on the top edge of the low brick wall. By the time Mom and Irene got to me, I was bleeding and had a huge knot on top of my head. Mother carted me off to Dr. Shepard and he put eight stitches in my head. When Dad came home a week later, he looked me over and went to the wall. You don't seem to have done any damage, he said. Everyone thought that was funny, except Mom. The next year's adventure occurred one day when I was wading barefoot and sailing stick ships in the middle of a large mud puddle at the corner of Spring Street and Oak Street. The lot was often used as a pickup baseball field, and we considered it part of our territory. I stepped on a piece of broken glass under the water and cut two toes pretty badly. Off again we went to Dr. Shepard, and he stitched me up again. When Dad got home, my foot was in a bandage, and he was sympathetic, but refrained from any humor. The third year was the topper. I was behaving myself and sitting on the front porch of the Osborne's house across the street. Mrs. Osborne brought out glasses of Coca-Cola for her kids, Nita and Bobby, and for Michael, Billy, and me. Somehow, from my sitting position, I fell forward and broke the glass. I landed on the jagged bottom of the glass with my right hand. The pad at the bottom of my index finger was sliced in several places, and I severed an artery. Once again, we were off to the doctor. Once again, he stitched me up and put a boxing glove-sized bandage on my hand. He told Mom it was a ragged series of cuts and that I should keep the hand as immobile as possible. Later that afternoon, I was sitting on the Davis porch with Mom and Irene and the boys. I was again behaving myself and just sitting still when the huge boxing glove bandage suddenly turned from white to red. Mom put me in the car while Irene called the doctor. He said to take me to the emergency room in Rock Hill. My memory of York General Hospital emergency room is fuzzy, but I distinctly remember the nurse removing the bandage and my hand spraying blood all over her white uniform. They stopped the bleeding and the stitches in my hand look like a checkerboard. The scar is still visible after 60 plus years. Thankfully, the unlucky streak ended that year. Mother's nerves were allowed to heal, and most people agree I made it through childhood without permanent damage. There are a few folks, however, who cut their eyes away when I mentioned the head injury.